0: Welcome to the Real Python Podcast. This is episode 186, recorded November 8th, 2023. Are you interested in using your Python skills within Excel? Would you like to share a data science project or visualization as a single office file? This week on the show, we speak with principal architect John Lamb and senior cloud developer advocate Sarah Kaiser from Microsoft about Python in Excel. John shares the multi-year journey of adding Python to Excel. He describes how the project moved beyond writing user functions in Python to something much more elaborate. He details assembling a team with diverse skills in interface design, languages, and security. Sarah discusses the instant convenience of having familiar Python and Pandas techniques at your fingertips inside Excel. We cover typical data science workflows and the potential of interactive visualizations within a spreadsheet. We also share multiple resources for you to learn more. Note, Python and Excel is currently a preview accessible by joining the Microsoft 365 Insider program and selecting the beta channel. All right, let's get started. The RealPython podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. All right. So this week, I got a couple guests coming in from Microsoft. I first want to introduce Sarah Kaiser. Sarah Kaiser is a Senior Cloud Developer Advocate at Microsoft and somebody who I met at PyCascades this year, but I haven't had quite had her on the show yet. We've been kind of playing a little bit of a email tag or something. (laughs) So do you want to explain a little bit what you do
1: there, Sarah? Yeah, definitely. So I'm a Cloud Developer Advocate, which basically means I get to play with all the cool new stuff as it comes out, break it, and then tell people about it. (laughs) So (laughs) right now, my background is in kind of research software and quantum computing stuff, but I really enjoy trying to explore how we use Python to do data science, machine learning, uh, research, kind of anything in that sort of genre, if you will. So also lots of Jupyter Notebooks.
0: (laughs) I I love me Jupyter
1: Notebooks, but yeah. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. we talk about them so much here. (laughs) That's great. Mm -hmm. And we have John Lamb, who's a principal architect at Microsoft, and you are largely responsible for what's going on here today about uh, Python and Excel. Can you explain a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, it's it's mostly my fault. (laughs) I kind of describe my day job as being a cross between a used car salesman and an arms dealer for Python technology in DevDiv for the company, right? So what I try to do is I try to get Python integrated into various things at the company, and there's always been a bunch of projects in the uh, in the oven, so to speak, uh, for for a while. And in this Python in Excel thing, really kind of started about four years ago. Oh wow! Actually, just a little bit over four years ago, when there were a couple of guys from the Excel team that showed up in a conference room in Building 17 <laughs> with a prototype that they had built for running jupyter notebooks in excel so they did this crazy thing where they stuck a jupyter notebook you know the the excel task pane the thing that's on the right hand side of excel sure that's all really big so anyways they, they had jammed a um a jupyter notebook in there <laughs> and uh, they were able to go off from from within uh, cells in the uh the grid to go off and invoke Python functions that they would define huh. over in the Jupyter notebook. So that, that's kind of how this whole thing started. You know, I haven't heard that term DevDiv. Uh, what does that ah. stand for? So that's Developer Division at Microsoft. So that's the part of the company that builds all of our um, development tools. So VS Code is probably the most famous thing um, that comes out sure. of uh, DevDiv, of course, Visual Studio. And then there's uh, there's of course GitHub. Right. So all of that stuff kind of lives inside of the the DevDiv organization.
0: Okay. Yeah, thanks. And so what's nice about having you both here is we can kind of talk about multiple sides of this project and talk about sort of applications and things and ways to use it. And Sarah, I think you've actually done a couple of videos and a couple explainers on on some of this, which I'm excited about. And you come from the data science side, which I definitely see this as a, a tool for people to do that sort of stuff, exploring data inside of Python and Excel. So how's your experience been so far, Sarah?
1: It's been honestly a really cool thing. When I first, first heard from my, my manager, like, hey, you want to try out this new Python in Excel? I was like, sorry, what? <laughs> I mean, I, I use Python, like, what, what's wrong with my Python? <laughs> but as I kind of got to play around with it and saw some of the, the design decisions and stuff that John's team had been working on, I don't know, I, it seems... It's, I started to see why it was pretty cool and why I got excited about making, you know, some, some videos and, and tutorials and stuff around it. But basically, you know, when you're working on data science, whether it's like in an academic context or maybe in a company or even me who's, like, scraping through my Home Assistant data logs, like, all (laughs) of my temperature loggers and stuff, Yeah, you know, sometimes I just want to get to something really quick. I don't want to have to, like, you know, I try to do the right thing when I start a new project of creating new Python environments, you know, make sure I don't put everything in base and then be sad later. So being able to open an Excel spreadsheet, which is kind of like what you do from early school, you know, some of the first kind of data, Babby's first data analysis that you learn when you're doing stuff in school, high school, whatever. Yeah. I'm opening the CSV file. And so like to be able to kind of go from that, like I said, I like Jupyter Notebook. So I really like the kind of graphical interface data exploration sorts of tools.
0: Yeah. And the interactivity.
1: Exactly. You know, I can I can see my data. I can kind of like see how the transformations change it. And so, like, yeah, basically, this kind of felt like getting a 2D grid of a Jupyter notebook that, from my standpoint, was also really easy to share. And I think that's kind of one of the biggest things that, from my perspective, coming from the Python side of things, like, I feel like I I know Excel. I am definitely not an Excel power user <laughs> as sure. I' am watching more and more videos as YouTube tells me more and more things about you know Python and Excel.
0: you're not ready to join the uh, the league or whatever
1: uh, and do the oh competition <laughs> yeah like I, yeah there there are like some really cool competitions that people do yeah, no, it's so wild. The stuff people do in Excel is amazing. It's always fun to see how people kind of really dive in and make their tools like the coolest thing ever, and so like I'm excited to leverage. That whole—it's it, like a huge new community that you can kind of work with and communicate with with your Python stuff that you're familiar with. Yeah. But now you kind of have like an additional language. I mean, it's not a literal language, but you have—it's an additional platform or language that you know. Yeah. Everybody can understand.
0: I have a background in data science that's kind of real mixed. I, I kind of got into Python pretty late. I was an, a, a SQL guy. Uh, I was doing a lot of that stuff in banks, and then. I joined a marketing division inside of a bank and they were, I was like, okay, I got to learn Python here. and I was building kind of automation tools, but they were sort of an R versus Python house. And they would go back and forth between the two. And I didn't care. I was still learning everything. And so I did a lot of R and a lot of stuff in uh, R studio. And I kind of got used to seeing the data, if that makes sense. And I feel like often in Python, there are lots of times where people are working with data and not really seeing all of it at once. They're very often just seeing like head <laughs> you know, and just seeing like, you know, just parts of it or doing a describe or something like that. And I, I was more used to like more of the Excel side or the SQL side or whatever, where I was like able to like sort entire things and so forth. So I can really see from a data exploration side, why, you know, this is exciting for people maybe from both sides kind of to look at. It's like, oh, I get these nice tools from what I get in Python, but I also like somebody who, you know, is a Python user, maybe they like using Excel as that, you said, like initial Mm -hmm. way to look at data. Um, I, you know, I still do it from time to time. It's one of the easiest things to do is just toss a CSV into Mm -hmm. (laughs) Excel. (laughs) So that's actually really kind of neat. And I do like that idea. So maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the under the hood stuff like how how does that work that you can like you say create this workbook then and then potentially be able to just share it with somebody else what's sort of you know i, I think some people might have some of the background but let's start with say nobody knew anything about it at all like what what's being leveraged in order to to make that happen i, I think
2: john would be probably the person that, to add here yeah the uh, it's a interesting kind of solution that we we landed on to to build this thing some of the key things that we cared about in the design of uh, the feature really was making sure that it was really really simple to share stuff okay and right because that's fundamentally like I i think about excel and documents in general as a collaboration medium for people so people work together on documents and sharing the documents, however they do it, you know, maybe they pass it by value or they pass it by reference, you know, both, both of those things should work. And when somebody else opens the document, they should be able to change something and have the Python stuff recalculate, right? So that was a key design point of this thing because of the importance of sharing, which is why we landed on a design where all of the Python executes in Azure, okay, inside of a container. And so the way it works is each user has their own container that's dedicated for them. So any and all workbooks opened by that that user will open inside of the same um, session, if you will, right inside of that container. Okay. Python is a first class language inside of the grid so it's a peer of the excel formula language now in in this uh, in this feature so that means that you you know your your Python formulas participate in the automatic recalc stuff inside of Excel so it can depend on other excel cells that could contain Python or Excel formula language expressions, or it, it in its own right could be depended on by some other cell inside of Excel. So that, that works extremely well because you get the automatic recalc stuff. It's different, for example, than, say, Jupyter, where everything is manual and there is no automatic recalc or dependency analysis between things, um, which, again, is a strength of Excel. And, and by being a first-class language inside of the grid, it gets all of that nice, niceness for free as part of the design. Another way to kind of think about it is it's kind of like two-dimensional Jupyter notebooks is is a way that we've kind of described it in the past. Okay. You know, you can imagine that for your own sanity, you should probably structure things a certain way inside of the, the workbook. So one thing that's important inside of Python is to be able to define before use your variables. And if the execution order was undefined or kind of calculated on the fly dynamically based on however you chose to lay things out, that's going to be really hard for you to understand because clearly there are going to be some times where you want to initialize a variable for, before you use it somewhere else. And that, that happens all the time in, in Python software. So the way we do things is we enforce an order of execution inside of a sheet, inside of a workbook. So we execute cells from left to right, top to bottom that contain Python. Okay. Okay. So that just makes it really easy, right? You put something in the top left cell and then anything to the right or below it is going to execute after that. Hmm. And that, that just makes it much more predictable for humans as you're using it. But one of the cool things that you get out of that is imagine that you, you can kind of imagine that a column of cells inside of Python is kind of like a Jupyter notebook. Okay. And so one of the things that you can do in Excel that you can't do in Python is, sorry, that you can't do in Jupyter is this kind of drag to the right thing that the users of Excel do all the time, right? So you select a range of cells and you drag <laughs> to the right. yeah. And and when you do that, it goes off and duplicates, right, that, that, that formula over and over again to the right. Yeah, yeah. And then adjusts all the, the cell references as it goes, right? So that gives you the what-if analysis. So imagine that, I don't know, you had something that calculated some total of money at the bottom, right? And then one of the parameters, one of the cells at the top is just simply, I don't know, interest rate or some other variable that you want to change. And you you could just vary the interest rate as the top cell in each column and then you can select the whole thing including that and just drag it to the right and it's gonna go off and recalc all of the uh, the things build all that stuff, yeah. Yeah, automatically for each interest rate thing, right? So that that what if thing is very powerful.
0: That is a really cool thing about that Excel does that I think is is really handy. You know, that just the sort of auto building things out. Like okay, you mentioned dates, uh we were talking earlier. And that's something that's kind of neat that you can kind of do. Or you know, just even just like counting <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things are going by certain factors that that isn't something with the physicalness of it i mean yes you could write some kind of function that does it or something like that but the uh, the idea of just using it with a mouse has got this intuitiveness that that's kind of neat so this is not getting in the way of that at all it sounds like
2: exactly yeah that that a billion people on the planet already know how to use right so that that's the <laughs> you know that, yeah. that's kind of an important thing right so we wanted to make sure that whatever the experience was was kind of natural and familiar to all of them yeah, I want to talk a little bit about
0: when I did my first little two month ago sort of like, okay let let me play with it i I mm-hmm. wasn't able to get it running on my machine. it was not in you know kind of waiting my my turn <laughs> in the developer queue and i uh so I watched a bunch of videos and I kind of watched people work and I felt like it's kind of a bit of a dance the way that I thought of it that you would highlight maybe an area of a sheet and say, okay, this is the information that I want. And then you could say, I want to turn this into a data frame or I want to move this into sort of Python. And then it sort of becomes a Python object in a way. And then in reverse, once you've kind of, you know, created your Python workflow and, and written out what you want it to do, you still have that sort of object there and you then decide, okay, I want to put it back into a Excel as an object. Again, I, I forget the terminology, but I thought that was kind of an interesting dance. You're kind of going in and out of it a little bit. And that kind of goes back to what you're saying of the idea that it calculates all of that and then you know lays it out. And then if you were to update things, then you have to wait a moment for it to kind of go to the Azure Cloud instance and then Recalculate and push it back down. Uh, is that a good way of describing this sort of thing? I, again, I called it yeah. a dance, but
2: <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think you've you've done a great job of just kind of describing the the model that we tried to create for this thing. Okay, the the model was really intended so that again, it's it, it goes back to the, it should be natural and familiar to an Excel user, right? Because we really kind of intended this thing to be kind of like an Excel first kind of experience where it's less about Python and more about Excel, right? But we're going to kind of enrich um, Excel with Python instead of enriching Python with Excel, if you will, right? So
0: Okay, sure.
2: And so the idea was, was that, Ranges are a natural thing that people use all the time in Excel. They'll select a range of cells. Yeah. And uh, oftentimes these are two-dimensional um, ranges of cells as well. So the natural thing for us to marshal that as into the, the Python process is a Pandas data frame, um, which, is, which is what we chose to do. Okay. So when that, that range of cells materialize on the other side, we, it's, it's already a data frame. And uh, we have a special function that, that we've created, which is the XL function, right? The letter X and the letter L. And you can just pass in a string, which is the range. And that, that, that's just a valid cell reference from Excel. And we will do the right thing. If it's two-dimensional, it's automatically a pandas data frame coming out the other side. Okay.
0: If it's one-dimensional, is it a NumPy array then, or does it become...
2: Yeah, so so the the, the, the challenge, thing we, this is one of these things where we've gone back and forth on this a lot, right? There's many, many design meetings on, on this issue, right? Uh, well, what should it be? Should it be a list, right? <laughs> so should so originally it was, should the two-dimensional thing be a list of lists? Should a one-dimensional thing be a list, right? And of course, a, a, a zero-dimensional thing, a single scalar value rate will just be a scalar on either side. And what we decided is, the 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 thing that probably made the most sense, I and mean, after lots of consultation with pandas experts and other folks, we we landed on on the fact that it's going to be by default a, a one dimensional pandas data frame. Okay. Right. So it's always a data frame when it's a multi dimensional thing. But if you don't like that, there are wrappers that you can go and override yourself to to just change the marshalling behavior. Okay. Right. So if you're all about lists and lists of lists, which Guido is a big fan of. You know, then you can go change the marshalling behavior to that if if that's what you want.
0: Okay. One of the things I was fascinated by was the fact that you mentioned already that this thing has pandas ready to go. It it creates this data frame. In fact, it kind of uses the DF name, and of course, you can rename it, which is great. You know, very much like you can regions of Excel areas. You know, the sort of two D sections, which is great as far as referencing and and working with. And I, I like that. But then I was confused because it was like. Okay, well, as I watched these other users who had access to and I didn't have, they were using terms in there with their abbreviations and they weren't doing anything like importing or doing any other kinds of things. And I was like, well, what is this list? And so when I finally got it running myself, that was like the first thing I went to search for because I'm a nerd. And, <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, what is there? And so there's a way to like, uh, I don't know what the button is exactly, but there was a way to sort of see what was pre-imported. And it was pretty interesting to me. And it kind of also informed me a little bit about standards as far as data science goes. Um, but pandas is in, a, is in there, and it's a, literally an import pandas as pd, uh, numpy as np, matplotlib.pyplot as plot, stats model as sm. I don't use that as much, but I guess that's pretty common. And then uh, seaborn as sns. And then there were a couple of interesting ones that I think... Uh, you kind of alluded to a little bit the the idea that there's this custom stuff that needs to be under the hood, which is sort of Excel things. And that kind of allows that dance of moving in and out. There's a, literally an import or import Excel as one of them. And then and then there's a couple other ones that are interesting, like you talked about Scalar and Array and I don't need, need to go too in the weeds on an audio podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I
2: thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, read read the entire net.py, Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I mean is that kind of what's happening is that those extra little bits are for the ability for Excel to, you know, communicate in and out of this world.
2: Yeah, exactly. We we define the 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 interoperability library, the the thing that you're importing as Excel. Okay. And and that is that that's something that we will uh, you know, release the source code for, right, just so people can learn from it and that kind of stuff, right? We just okay. haven't gotten there yet because we're still changing a lot of stuff while we're in preview. And that's going to allow people to to do whatever they want, right? There's this init.py file, so to speak, okay. in quotation marks, um, inside of um, Excel as well. And and through the the ribbon, right, there's, there's a button you can click on to go look at its contents. You currently can't e- edit that thing, which is Disappointing, but it's a preview. Um, but we will fix that by the time we, we get to GA. And in, in inside of that file, as as you said, like, yeah, there's just a bunch of imports. And that's mostly so that you don't have to reimport everything in in, in the first cell yourself. Yeah. If you're, that's what you want. But of course, remembering how things work inside of this thing, if you just put a bunch of things in the top left cell, or actually there's also a defined execution order for all of the sheets as well. Mm-hmm. So the sheets execute from left to right. Um, and then within each sheet, they execute left to right, top to bottom. And so you could just stick something in some sheet that you just name the sheet init, and then you can just write whatever <laughs> initialization things that you want in there um, yourself, right? And and then know that you can just reference any of that stuff from any sheet to the right of that in the in the tab order inside of Excel.
1: That's definitely what I've done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was, I, was, I was about to ask, yeah. I have a copy-paste tab that I put in any, start with any worksheet that's like, all right, here's my init for everything yeah. tab.
2: Yes.
0: So in your case, Sarah, are there things that, that do these imports, going back to kind of the data science y part of it, do they solve most of the things that you want to do with it? Or are you adding things in this sort of init that you're you're creating?
1: Honestly, the the default ones pretty much cover <laughs> I would say, you know, eighty to ninety percent of what I, you know, just naively would use for stuff. Okay. Usually uh, I'm trying to think the um, Sometimes uh, importing like scikit learn usually it's the machine learning stuff okay. that uh, probably is not set up by default for resource <laughs> uh, loading times and stuff. Yeah. so yeah that's usually that's usually the ones that I you know have now in my personal init uh, sheet but yeah honestly, like what is in that kind of default conda environment that's running on on Azure really does cover. I mean, unless I'm working on an incredibly, you know, specific, you know, this is geospatial data from specifically this model of a thing that has its own package, then yeah, I'm probably going to go do something else.
0: Okay. (laughs) So one of the things that I I think you alluded to a couple times uh, is this idea of shareability. And that's definitely one of the champion things about Excel (laughs) is the idea that you can create this Excel sheet or workbook or what have you and and you know give it to anybody else how does this change that for users like in the sense that if i were to create something and my wife maybe doesn't have a 365 kind of thing set up and so forth and i send her this workbook what are kind of limitations there that that she would run into i
2: don't know who would want to take this
1: yeah I, I can talk about this because like this you, you probably know the current status of this better than me John <laughs> this
2: is a complicated thing so just to get one thing out of the way. this will be a paid feature um, down the road with details of okay. how much and and, and and how you have to pay for it you know to be to be determined um still
0: it's similar to how the copilot things are going to
2: be like yeah, a, exactly. an additional fee on yes. top of your three hundred sixty five okay exactly and so we we like to talk about makers and takers uh, makers are the people that kind of construct the, the 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 spreadsheets and the takers are the people that kind of use the the, the things that the makers create okay. and the the thinking right now is that and what we think in terms of organizations right so it's going to be a little bit more challenging for people that aren't inside of organizations but let's let's say that inside of an organization You've got some set of people that are paying for these things. They can go create um, a workbook and they can share it with other people. And so there's going to be a a default entitlement for people that even if they're not paying for the feature, that they're going to be able to recalc. Okay. Right. So that's the big thing, right? So uh, the thing to remember is opening a workbook doesn't trigger any recalc whatsoever, right? Because workbooks never recalc on a file open. It's only when you change a value. It's sort of frozen in a way, right? Exactly. Yes. And, and it's cached all of the, the, the results, right? They're just stored in the in the workbook. Right. So when you open it, you'll be able to see all the values and all that stuff. It's only when you change something in the workbook that it triggers a recalc. And then now all of a sudden we got to go bring some Python execution into the picture on Azure. Right. That amount of recalc will be quoted for people that aren't paying for it, right? Okay. And again tbd the details of what that quote is going to look like but it's going to be reasonable um i thought it was going to be just read only so that's no, that's interesting Yes. That, that's, that's okay good yeah okay. I, I think that's really important to really deliver the value um because everybody had to pay just you know it it certain people should have to pay in in you know for the for the feature and then other people should just be able to kind of consume the works that right. that the others have uh, created in the first place yeah
0: i like that idea of the creators
2: and you know
0: Consumer kind of thing or whatever uh, yeah. in a way, but having that ability to makers and takers, yeah, makers and takers. That's good. I like it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Cool. That answers a bunch of questions I have on that. That that it's really interesting because uh, it reminds me of times where you know uh, I've received really large spreadsheets again working at a bank with or really huge workbooks I should say that are multiple sheets and kind of going into it and. And you kind of wonder sometimes you're scratching your head. Is this up to date? You know, like, and, and needing to kind of hit the recalculate button. And I feel like that isn't quite the same in this sense that you're not necessarily having to press something to, to recalculate. It's sort of just doing it. Um, unless you have no internet, then, then you, it's, I think pretty obvious what you get. <laughs> it's like, I think it shows like nothing or I, I'm trying to remember what it showed when I uh, saw a demo of that.
2: Well, we, we have a new feature in, in, in the Excel that has the the, the, the Python feature. And, and Excel has the, I don't know what we're calling it, stale cell feature, I think is what we're calling it. And okay. so if a, a cell, so another thing to remember is that there's lots of configurability in Excel. So there are a set of users who like to work in what we call manual recalc mode. You have to press F9. To trigger a recalc, yeah, yeah, in that it's right? faster, maybe it's faster, especially in large workbooks in, in in particular. You know, sometimes you're just changing a bunch of values and then then recalc, yeah, right. But the problem is, you you've now changed a bunch of values and you don't know which cells are not valid anymore, right? So you'll just have to recalc, right? But with this new feature, those cells are going to be grayed out, okay, if uh, if they have dirty values, in other words, values that need to be uh, recalc in order to make them current with the changes in the in the sheet. So we think that that's going to be, I have a hypothesis, and I'd love to ask Sarah if this is the way she thinks <laughs> as well. But our hypothesis is that most people will use that mode by, hopefully by default, simply because it just makes the experience snappier, right? Like we, there, there's lots of optimizations we do the calculation. We haven't done a lot of the optimizations yet on the on the Python calc. And so we think that this, this kind of dirty cell mode is just going to be give people a better experience all all up, right? You get to know the things that you need to recalc and you get to determine when you want those things to recalc, not just on every edit, which is what happens by default. Yeah,
1: okay. Yeah, no, that definitely was one of the first things when when the flag for that feature came out was one of the first things I turned on because I definitely was kind of running into that scenario, especially with some of the machine learning libraries reloaded. Like if I was just changing some plotting options, I didn't need it to like recalculate everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it took some time. So I really like where, you know, some of the, those options that you have, because I've also gotten Jupyter notebooks quite frequently that have output cell, like people weren't doing, you know, sanitizing it, I guess, properly. So they would be executing in different orders. And so some cells would actually have been executed with different. Yeah. So like, Mm -hmm. you know, I always try to like do full wipe and rerun. (laughs) But yeah. I never wanted to make that assumption. So like having that compromise of both I can control, you know, it's not it's not uh, automatically doing it uh, eagerly. I can still choose when it goes, but I also have visibility on what is out of date. Yeah. So like okay. I can, you know, or someone else who's looking at it like the the fact that you know I can send a share link and have multiple people, you know, like you can have multiple people editing a Word document or an Excel sheet at the same time. You can have multiple people editing Uh, these Excel sheets with you. Or, like, you know, when I say share, like, when we say share, it's not just like, oh, you can view the document, all of the same things that you could do in Excel or an M365 sort of document, you can do. And so, like, you know, I think that's kind of one of the holy grails for a notebook like experience is that co-editing thing which you know some some notebook front ends have some don't but like being able to all right i i just pulled this data file off the server you know hey <laughs> we don't work in the same office because we're remote, but like, let's both hop in here. And we can importantly, like the other thing is leaving comments, right? Like how many times do you go back and forth? Like I prefer working in Markdown, but it's very hard for people to leave comments. So I use Word documents (laughs) and track changes and stuff like that. So you get all of those sorts of things, which are not easy or even at all technically possible with Jupyter notebooks, but just that are part of, as John was saying, like, a billion people understood uh, workflow tools. So, yeah,
0: it's in, it's interesting. You bring a lot of the stuff up, like the. I've had this conversation a handful of times about the interactivity of Jupyter notebooks is fantastic, but very often they are like a regular person's notebook, meaning that they've scribbled all over the place and some things are maybe out of order and they've just kind of worked their way through this thing and it's kind of this messy thing and maybe it isn't intended to be read from beginning to end, but that's really bad as far as a consumption thing (laughs) for another person. There's like a survey uh, that somebody had done where they were like going on GitHub and looking at all the Jupyter Notebooks and how many of them they could run, which I thought was sort of fascinating like uh, as a, a, an experiment but but yeah i agree with you and, and in this case john you mentioned it several times this idea of like okay well this runs this way and it's always go- going to run this specific way through you know left to right and and so forth and i, I think that's really intriguing and, and kind of makes me think about like you know what you're saying about how this is sort of similar and has this Uh, ability to be interactive Um, I like interactive stuff I think it's really nice but again if it's doing mass amounts of calculation then that just doesn't work like I you know I'm a big music guy and so one of my favorite programs is Logic and I talk about this often the idea that I can edit while it's playing uh, if I want Almost every other tool i've ever used, you are not allowed to like grab the regions on things and adjust them subtly while things are playing, but sometimes that's something you need to do and and be able to hear it in time as opposed to like stop all right let's play with it, okay, hit play again, and so forth and yeah funk you know mess around with it and you guys are nodding with me because i I think that's really common like i but the ability to toggle it, I think, is really powerful. So that's really kind of neat, because I, I could see that if, if you literally have multiple cursors <laughs> moving around inside of the notebook, <laughs> or in this case, uh, inside of there. So that's great. I, I think we're hitting a lot of the things. One thing I didn't mention is just like, how do you start it? But I I, I don't know if most people know this, that just to kind of get going in it, that you, you still like to sell and you... I think there's like a key command, but you also can just hit equals and pi, right?
2: Yes. Okay. So, so it feels like a uh, an Excel built-in function, right? Like yeah, so just yeah, like, like a any, starting any a formula. Yeah, exactly. Right. So it's the same kind of like muscle memory, but of course, there's a keystroke that you should use, right? As as you use it on a daily basis. Yeah. Okay.
0: This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another Real Python video course data scientists spend a large amount of their time cleaning data sets so that they're easier to work with obtaining and cleaning data typically accounts for 80 percent of the time spent on any given project based on the topic this week I felt this course fit the theme it's titled data cleaning with pandas and numpy and it's based on real Python tutorial by Malay Argawal. in the video course Ian curry shows you about dropping unnecessary columns in a data frame changing the index of a data frame using string methods to clean columns, renaming columns to have a more recognizable set of labels, skipping unnecessary rows in a CSV file, cleaning dates and text based on rules, and much more. This is one of our intermediate video courses. To get the most out of this tutorial, you should have some basic understanding of the pandas and NumPy libraries. And if that's not the case, RealPython has you covered with even more courses on the fundamentals of pandas and NumPy. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections, and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes, or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. That's interesting. Like, did we hit most of the reasons why why this exists. I mean, we talked a little bit about the history of the project, the, mm-hmm. the idea of like four years ago, this kind of idea being brought to you and, and so forth. Um, Who are there other players in the team that you would want to mention that are like key and in, in, involved in it? It sounds like John, you're pretty, pretty deeply involved in, in getting this going, but are there other people? Cause I, I meant, I saw this note from uh, Anthony Shaw who helped get this set up for us, which thanks again, Anthony, that he, he mentioned uh, that, Guido and, and somebody named Anders, I'm not familiar with Anders, um, was involved. Is that are those other members of the team?
2: Yeah, so so yeah, I, I can tell you the story of that. Like the when we first started the project, we had a very you know, you know like how if you want to go ship something, you want to ship something that you know how to build and it should be small and you should be able to iterate after you've shipped that thing and, and, and so forth, right? So yeah. originally it was a very conservative target that we, we targeted for the feature, which was, can we just allow people to write functions in Python and call them from Excel, right? So we call these features user-defined functions okay. in the Excel um, parlance. And that's the thing we thought we were going to go build. And that's really straightforward. We know how to do that. But when we pitched this to, to management for them to fund it, we gave them some options. And then we had like this really crazy one, <laughs> um, which was, yeah, let's just, let's just shove it into the grid and we'll put Python in the grid, not outside of everything, right? And you just call the, the stuff as if it were just like any other function inside of Excel. So you literally presented like A, B, and C, like all these different options to them? Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, like small, medium, large, right. And we, we figured ah, well, they'll, they'll pick a the conservative one and we'll fund that, we'll ship that and we'll, we'll do that quickly. But they have didn't do that. They picked the most ambitious one, which <laughs> is the, let's put Python into the, the grid wow. thing. And that, of course, just terrified me um, because at the time it was there was like three of us and a few other folks like kind of on the side. Right. There was no design team. There was none of this um, spun up at the time. And, and so I panicked. And, and what I do when I panic is I write lists of questions. And uh, so I wrote this document four years ago, which are a list of questions, technical questions that we would need to answer if we were to go build this feature. And that list had about 100 questions on it. I think we solved probably about 80% of them or so by now, I think. But that list of questions said, oh, we need to get smart people engaged in in building the, the, the feature so what we did was we kind of put together like this all-star design team of people. Um, so of course Guido was in, in, in developer division. He had onboarded. In fact, I was his onboarding buddy, um, at the time when he, when he showed up in, in DevDiv. And one of the first people I introduced him to was Benoit and Benoit runs the Excel team. And this was like, okay. cause I've always had this crazy idea in the back of my head. This was long before the project was greenlit, you know? And I, and so I remember Guido looked at that and says, that, that was, that, that's crazy. <laughs> <laughs> right? Why, why would anyone want to go do that? Right. So he was like a skeptic from the beginning, and and then fast forward a little bit of time. Right. So so you know, John Panics writes down a big list of questions, and then did the Avengers assemble thing and gets a bunch of smart people. So so of course, I invited Guido. He he said graciously accepted. We also had a number of other folks, uh, Steve Dower, who uh, I think you've had on the show before. You know, I, I recruited Steve onto the effort as well. Eric Catriel, who had just recently joined Microsoft at the time, another Python core developer, brought her on board. Okay. So he had a lot of Python expertise that way. But then I also need another guy uh, to act as uh, what I call my taste maker. So that, that's a guy that knows absolutely nothing about, well, maybe not absolutely nothing. He, he would claim absolutely nothing, but doesn't know much about Python. But that's, that's Anders Heilsberg. And And Anders is the designer of multiple languages, Object Pascal. Turbo Pascal, Object Pascal, Delphi, C Sharp, and TypeScript. Right, so probably one of the more illustrious language designers um, in the world, and his job was to make sure we didn't do something stupid. Uh, And in fact, there was a a good story which, if I remember to do later on, right, where we were about to do something stupid, and he. You know, the, that that was worth the, the, the price of admission for, for bringing Andres onto the team. <laughs> and then we also had a number of folks from on the Excel Calc side that that deeply understand the innards of Excel, you know, some, some kind of like, you know, all, almost fossils at Microsoft that have been around for decades working on the Excel cool. Calc Engine were also part of our design team as well. So we kind of put that team together to, to, to sit in a room twice a week for almost a year, kind of hammering out a bunch of you know, complicated design decisions that led us to, I think a model that kind of makes sense, you know, and of course I'll, I'll leave it to Sarah to be the, the judge of whether or not the thing we, we made is, is sensible and makes sense and things like that as well. Right. Cause I think, yeah, we were rather, you know, there was always like that, that when we launched this thing back in August, there was, you know, just a lot of hand wringing at the beginning, right? Like, did we get it <laughs> right? Did we screw this up? Are they going to hate it? Or are they going to love it? And, and so forth.
0: Yeah. Well, I thought we could kind of dig into some of the stuff that like to me, like right out of the box, I was like, these are neat things that as somebody who plays with data a lot, I really thought would be fun to have and ready to go inside of Excel. And one of them is, you know, you get right out of with the having pandas right there, you get the ability to to type dot describe, which is something that isn't really easy to do inside of Excel. Like you can really tell what's happening with you know, your data frame, what it's made out of. And, and I thought maybe, I don't know if you have some of these, like, are there other kind of quick wins you can think of, Sarah, that are like, wow, this is really cool. Like right out of the box, I can I can do something that as a, you know, somebody uses Pandas and, and Jupyter and so forth, that right away, I was like, oh, I can do this now. Can you think of some of those?
1: Oh, yeah, totally. I think probably one one easy one is like, scikit-learn is one of the packages in that conda environment so like just being able to take some data and you know build up a a regression model for it and be able to just kind of take some of those you know easy pretty elementary at this point, because everything has gotten very complicated. But, you know, sure. just being able to forecasting the basic kind of ML tasks, which I'm sure people can do in Excel. <laughs> I feel like it's not as easy as here's two cells that are like, you know, create my t- tokenize my data and, you know, run the regression <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, in, you know, 100 characters or less sort of thing. So I think some of those tasks if I'm kind of thinking from the standpoint of what would I do in a spreadsheet, like, obviously I yeah. I can do those things in in Python or wherever else, but like those would be traditionally, I think, really hard tasks for that. Another one that I, I really like, because I I'm I worked as a kernel developer at Mathematica for a while doing visualization design, okay. so I, I like my plots. <laughs> and <Sure. laughs> uh, so plotting is something that, if it's a line or like parametric plot might work okay in Excel, but anything more than that, you kind of probably get sad.
0: (laughs) I was thinking about that. Like what are, what are things that, that these libraries, you know, having matplotlib as one, but, but Seaborn is Mm -hmm. a much larger library and and it adds all these kind (laughs) of like multi-plot kinds of things Mm
2: -hmm. and,
0: and that ability. And um, maybe we could talk just briefly like what that looks like as far as again, that idea of, coming out of python back to excel like mm-hmm. how does that work as far as putting it onto like a worksheet
1: Yeah, So, I mean, yeah, it's really nice to be able to use some of the, like, advanced stats visualizations, like some of those hex heat map sorts of things. Uh, And for me, from an aesthetic standpoint, being able to programmatically, like, set... uh, Something I ended up doing in one of the first notebooks I was playing around with this is, like, you can use some of the interactive elements in Excel, like drop-downs and stuff, so... uh, I was wondering about that. (laughs) Technically, it's part of the data validation feature, so if you say this cell can only be one... One of these entries in a list. Okay. You can then use that as a parameter into other functions. So I basically made a GUI where I could like select parameters to my matplotlib uh, config okay. and just quickly check and change things so you know until I got something that looked nice. So it sounds almost
0: dashboardy in a way like uh, it, it, uh, yes. outside of like normally dashboards require you to host them and do all this other kinds of like mm-hmm. other stuff and it's so much nicer to like some, somebody in Excel and I that's something I created a lot of to visualizations and I was always kind of mm-hmm. like I want the end person not just to go oh that's nice um, I want them yeah. to be able to like touch it and like move it around <laughs> so that that's great that answers that question it's something I'll probably Somatic have to play with
1: plotting basically <laughs> <laughs> okay cool Yeah, and and importantly, by having that execution environment not local to my machine or something like that, they can actually change it. And, you know, the being able to have that interactivity that is an invitation to them that doesn't immediately start with, well, what version of Python do you have installed? (laughs) Um, Or please spin up this Docker container or whatever. Um,
0: Well, yeah, I couldn't host anything where I worked. It was like, it was so frustrating. It was like, Mm -hmm. I I, I was just, I would go crazy. And it's like, um, Linux is not an approved operating system. And it's like, okay, well, can I do Docker? <laughs> we haven't decided if we can even do that. I was just like, oh my god, like I can't. How am I going to share anything? Well, oh, come to my machine, <laughs> yeah, and I would just yeah, get tired was... of that. So that this sounds like a really great solution for that. So neat.
1: Yeah, and that and that's part of like. There's some good stuff in the docs, and and John can probably speak more to. But part of uh, working with Anaconda on this such that that execution environment in the container on Azure is a con environment that has security implications so like I also worked at National Labs where basically exactly what you were saying we couldn't do anything locally <laughs> yeah. we couldn't you know which basically means people will do that anyway and then you know ask for forgiveness later but you know if you start with something that you know maybe it isn't exactly the same way someone would do it but like meets 90% of what they want That'll be an easy win both like for the user and for the company who's trying to keep company or research data from ending up on someone's like Chromebook or something.
0: Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, John? Like what were the security concerns that, that were involved in what you were
2: creating here? I had a whole section in that that document was like the hundred panicky questions I wrote at the start of the project, right? <laughs> that was um, devoted to the security stuff. So, yeah. So the way we run things is we run them inside of uh, an ACA, Azure Container Instances container okay. on Azure. That that container is a Hyper V isolated container. So that means that between you and any other user that's using this this feature, you have a Hyper V uh, boundary that surrounds your execution environment. Colloquially, we like to call this a steel box, so your Python code runs inside of this steel box right inside of Azure. Okay. And so what we do is we, we transmit data by value and the code by value to the, to the container for execution. And on the other side, inside of the container, it's, it's just a Jupyter Python kernel that's running the, uh, the code on the other side. And then the only stuff that comes back, right, comes back as, as the response, right? So it's a request response protocol yeah. that we have for that. And the the code that runs in the container, there is no outbound network access allowed um, from that container, right? So that there's no opportunities, for example, for a rogue library to go and exfiltrate data, you know, off premises, right, from your from your workbook. Okay. So that set of things, while it is restrictive, it really allows you to just kind of like open a Python workbook, which is very different from not so long ago when people had lots of Excel macros inside of their Excel workbooks and the, the scary dialogue box that would pop up that says, You trust this, and all. You'll notice if you <laughs> use the feature, we don't have any of that stuff. Okay, because we're secure by default, we designed it to be. You'd have to trust Tom from accounting here. Your... Exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> but because all users look at that 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 dialogue box and they read the text as being, "Would you like to work today? Yes or no?" <laughs> yeah. And you know, nobody says no. I don't want to work today. So, so they always say yes. Yeah. So it's 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 a very poor defense. Yeah. So so because of all of these things we kind of put into place with the the cloud execution, we get a bunch of things that kind of all line up in the same direction. We get the guaranteed sharing of stuff. We we have the the confidence. We we give people the confidence, right, to open a workbook knowing that it's not gonna steal their data or destroy their machine or, or something else. Right. And and that just really encourages people to just go off and just use the feature. And, and I think that, that those were kind of really important things on the, the security um, side of things. We get people complaining about it all the time. Yeah. You don't have to do too much searching to go, why is Microsoft doing this? Why can't it run on my machine? I own my computer. Why, why? You know. But if I were to turn around and ask you the question, like, how would you share? Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, when was the last time you wrote a Python program on your machine, walked over to some other random person's computer and just copied that Py file over and just ran it and it worked? Yeah. Now we talk
0: about it constantly, so I I think that's really great. And yeah, <laughs> having met lots of compliance officers and uh-huh. uh, <laughs> people inside law firms and inside of uh, oh, yeah. uh, banks and things like that, and, um, this sounds like this could probably get the sign off on those documents that they they love to have to get filled out every year. <laughs> so yes, <laughs> let's talk about what it's not, because I think some people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw my wife under the bus, sorry. <laughs> She'll never listen to this. <laughs> she might, actually. Um, she immediately said to me, oh, so then I can have it do this, that, the other thing. And so she thought this would allow her to create this programming environment where you could stand something up and users could log into it and enter information and it could log in. And I'm like, it's not that, it's not creating like to do those kinds of things even in Python you have to have like a server you have to stand this thing up and and so forth and it's not going to solve the the solution that like a very elaborate application it's not creating apps per se It, it allows us to do a lot of the things that we do in data science and maybe I'm wrong maybe maybe I'm incorrect in saying that but I feel like that's something that some people want. They want another programming tool that works with all of their Microsoft stuff, that ties it all together, that lets it become um, sort of a application development platform. And I, I feel like that really isn't what it
2: is. There's, I, I don't know about that, right? Like, like I think that in one of my, my my more kind of fevered dreams of where this this project could go in the in the future you know, and I've told other folks this is I think that what we're building is because oftentimes we get this question, is this a VBA replacement, right? right? Are, are you replacing VBA in, in, in Excel? And no, we're not doing that, right? That, that's it's it, the, the, the role of Python isn't to automate the UI of, the, of, of Excel. It's to perform calculations the same way that the Excel formula language pre- performs calculations. However, it, you know, and you kind of alluded to this earlier about trying to share inside of a corporate environment. Like, Jupiter suffers from this all the time, right? Like, what we see in, inside of large um, companies is that the data science team gets away with all sorts of stuff that regular developers would never get away with because they do quote-unquote important <laughs> things with data, right? And, right, exactly. and so, um, so there's this whole... Sh- We're doing special stuff here. <laughs> exactly, yeah. But there's all this shadow IT. There's this whole shadow IT thing that happens in, in organizations. Okay. And the IT people hate this, right? Like, it's like, why do those people get to do whatever they want? Right. And... So the, the 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 challenges of just, say, let's say deploying Jupyter, just going off and deploying Jupyter inside of an organization is really hard. Like, how do you authenticate? How do I control access? How do I deal with all the versioning issues um, yeah. of things over time, right? Those are all real issues that somebody has to go and, and deal with. One of the kind of really cool things about Excel is it's already inside of the IT compliance boundary. Yeah. You know, I, I often say that what Microsoft really sells is compliance and governance uh in the guise of you know products and, and and services and you know that's a really big part of what our business is and yeah. so because excel is already inside of the compliance boundary by being able to add excel and to secure excel at that not excel sorry python at that yeah in in the environment it really allows people to build applications now now to your point earlier there's kind of some limitations around that right now right like yeah how do you define application yeah so so if if you're you know something simple like i don't know calorie calculator or something you know where there's like a table of foods and their calories in this spreadsheet and you can have an application where you can kind of write down or select things like how much i ate and portions and all that sure that's an application And you could totally go build that with Python, right? Because Excel, the grid itself is already a reactive canvas and you don't have to write everything in Python, nor should you write everything in Python. Excel formula language is fine for all sorts of things um, already. It gives you the GUI stuff already in a way too. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you're authenticated. So if you're building some, you know, IT thing, you're already signed into Excel, yeah. inside of your organization right and so there's really no reason why you can't do that now we we have all sorts of restrictions in our programming all right now right and and we're actively trying to figure out the kinds of things that we can do down the road to allow enterprises to kind of create some of these other applications mm, okay to be able to use excel as the the kind of client software piece to go talk to other things. And they're going to need to be able to control, for example, uh, the VNet that the the containers execute inside of right? the, the virtual network, put resources inside of it, selectively open things up so you can talk to those. And once you get to that kind of level, you can start building a quote-unquote client server application using using this technology stack as well. So I, I think that there's a lot of things we can do down the road. We're certainly not there yet. We're, we're trying to ship V1 get some feedback from customers on that, and then go off and iterate and figure out what we need to do for 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 V2 and beyond.
0: Definitely uh, watch the space thing.
2: <laughs> yes, yes, definitely. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're not done yet.
0: Yeah. Sir, <laughs> so are there other things that you are kind of excited to be able to do inside of here, inside this uh, environment that Python is adding to your Excel experience?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the well, one of the demos that I, I really like that I'm working on is making a Dungeons & Dragons, like, game state, like, your game master sort of wow. screen. But then also being able to use this, because there's always this problem of, like, you know, I can track things on paper. Sometimes I have, like, a whiteboard to show people, like, here's, you know, the order that you're taking turns in and stuff. But I can share, like, with the sharing bit here, I can share, like, a, just one sheet or one section of a sheet to show just the public information that I want to show to the players so they can have that up on their machines, you know, for playing remotely and stuff, but I can still, but I don't have to like duplicate that and be like, Oh shoot, sorry. That was from the last battle, but I can have the whole monster manual. I have it like, you know, that I can roll die and generate parties, you know, like enemy parties that they can fight against. And I want to try and figure out how to do some like machine learning, like, I did do some cool stuff like correlating different properties of the different monsters in the monster manual to like are the big ones always evil like <laughs> you know some some fun stat stuff like that so like you know, I, I'm really excited at kind of trying to find some of those weirder edge case, like, yeah, we can all do, like, financial forecasting and stuff. That's <laughs> we, we know Excel's good at that. I don't think anyone needs to, <laughs> to like, we know that. <laughs> what other cool things can we do having, as, as John was talking about, this kind of reactive canvas and, you know, like, most of what I would need for, like, tabletop gaming or for... Because, like, making GUIs in Python is a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, 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 Like, you know, Jupyter Notebooks are a good, like, kind of would be my go-to, right? You know, I use a package that has some nice, you know, HTML, fancified HTML outputs, you know, like X-Array or things like that for exploring and looking at my data sets. But just to be able to have, you know fairly easy and quick to customize here. You know, when I update my data here, here's my... I have had it where basically I make a sheet that's like my my summary stats that, you know, I can grab and do a bunch of different things, but see it all like in a couple different tables with the plots embedded. You know, it's basically like a... As we were also talking about before, for, for dashboarding, for... People who don't want to make a dashboard. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of like my my current holy grail would be here to like have it where I can just with you know some of the plotting tools like because it's really easy to make some of those composite plots. You know, we have a bunch of subplots and Matplotlib and whatnot, yeah. and just be able to have like a sheet that here's here's all the plots you can change, you can right. see.
0: Can I ask you a quick on the Dungeons and Dragons thing? Is mm-hmm, that for mm-hmm. remote play? Is that what that's enabling you to do in some ways?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Remote play is definitely the the biggest thing. Cause like I actually had a secondary camera set up <laughs> cause I still wanted to do it physically. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. We tried that. We tried having like a Google sheets, you know, we had like web-based spreadsheets, but then I'm like having to manage multiple places. You know, maybe I want things to auto calculate and populate from these parties that I'm generating. I don't know. I, that's cool. There are some cool Python packages for, you know, like that have a lot of the information from the generalized game rules you know the that are published but
0: that save save you some effort yeah
1: <laughs> well yeah so but it's it's been really fun to kind of play around and see what I can and also oh the one i was going to i was trying to remember from before yeah obviously you can work with data that's like in the sheet directly like that's kind of would be you know you open a csv the data's right there in this the sheet but because of uh, what we were talking about before you know sometimes i would get data by like downloading it from the web. And, you know, you go to... There's a GitHub repo that has it somewhere and then you would download it. Yeah, You can't really do that here because you don't have that external network access. Okay. So, yeah. Basically, another way you can kind of uh, load data and queries in there into your Excel spreadsheet is Power Query. So to Excel people, that's like nothing new. This, this was a thing that I learned about Excel <laughs> trying to work with uh, Python data. And it's basically like a really slick... You know, you you choose from your menu of where your data is. Is it is it a web link there? So that's basically like if you had web-based data okay. that you wanted to pull into your sheet, you can't really do it from like you know any sort of like web connection in the Python kernel. But you can pull it in with Power Query, and so that's how I was getting like okay. all the Magic Card stats or whatever that I was pulling nice. in, yeah. or SQL databases, basically any of the places where you might have data. And it's it was just a really you know, from a Python experience, I was like, this is a really nice way to kind of pull this all in. And then it gave you a really nice, (laughs) I think one of the things I liked the most was as a part of that Excel package that, you know, is how I refer to, you know, you can refer to the data in the, in the Python cells. Yeah. You just get, there's a name for that query. And so I could just call it that name. I don't have to like keep referring to a selection of cells or something like that.
0: Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Yeah, the Battleship notation of Excel sometimes is hard to, yeah. <laughs> yeah. G <laughs> 15.
2: <G-15. laughs>
1: I do appreciate, though, like even if you're editing the the Python-based cell and you, you know, like you would in normal, like you drag and select, it automatically puts in yeah. <laughs> into the, the editor that you have open. So uh, yeah, that's nice. Don't have to think about it too hard. But yeah, lots of cool stuff.
0: What I thought we could maybe wrap up with on this whole topic is is sort of resources, and one of them, John, you just sort of shared with us right as we began this sort of book of python and excel and uh, i 'll include a link with it but what what 's included in there what's what 's in the
2: the book it was It kind of originally started as as a bunch of my notes that we would take in the design meetings about decisions that we made and but what it 's really kind of turned into is a document that tries to explain to people from a Python perspective, not from an Excel perspective. Okay. You know, what this thing is, how it works, because, you know, podcasts are great for kind of being inspired by things, but it's a really terrible medium for kind of communicating details of how to do things. Sure. So there's a lot of details, a lot of code fragments in there that kind of just illustrate how things work inside of the, the model. Nice.
0: I mentioned the Python Day, is that what it was called? A talk that you did that was sort of covering some of the Python and Excel, I think, Sarah. So I'll include that video. Any other resources you guys want to shout out? I'll definitely have, as I always do, massive <laughs> copious notes included. So if you guys have other links or stuff that comes up before this uh, comes out, uh, we can include them. But or anything else off the top of your head that you'd want to
2: share as resources? We have a GitHub repo as well for this thing. Okay. That, that you should probably add to the uh, the show notes because that that's for issues and things like that. So there's yeah. oftentimes all sorts of... Pretty interesting discussions from people. A lot of times, feature requests kind of show up there, and you know, sometimes you get beat up over some of our design decisions there. So, if you want to go <laughs> see some of that, you'll you'll see some of those uh, those comments there as well. Right. But that that's a good place to to kind of have a conversation with uh, with the team.
1: Okay, Sarah, do you have any other resources you can think of? That was going to be the one I was I was going to mention, just because it is a really it's. Obviously, because I'm I'm working at Microsoft, I, I know and I'm interacting with the teams that are working on developing this, but I really appreciate how much the team is interacting with people kind of publicly. It's not just this kind of like closed-ish door process sort of thing. So there's been a lot of yeah. good discussions, <laughs> as John said, you know.
0: Yeah, like I think GitHub's a really great place for that. There's so many communities where things are like in like a Discord server or what have you. And it's like all those kind of odd third-party stuff that, I don't know, it seems like a hurdle to get into, whereas most developers probably have GitHub going and it's somewhere they can kind of check to kind of see what's going on and they maybe understand the workflow of it and so forth. So that's neat mm-hmm. that they can kind of be involved in the conversation. Well, I have these weekly questions I like to ask everybody. And the first one is, uh, what are you excited about in the world of Python? And that could be, you know, event, a book, package, editor, what have you.
1: I think the two things I would call out, one, PEP 703 is... fun fun and spicy. So that just got, a, I think, kind of conditionally approved, but it's the idea that the GIL will be optional for Python moving forward. So like from a core infrastructure standpoint, that's always been something from like a data science perspective, not being able to you know, having only one sub-interpreter or interpreter that could have the GIL definitely limits performance and why we've seen a lot of packages kind of go to you know, using the C API and calling out to Rust or, you know, whatever other Sort of acceleration frameworks yeah. to to make core Python faster. So the idea of like removing that requirement and just like what <laughs> I'm both here for the for the uh, tea, the drama, and also the what possibilities this might actually bring to you know.
0: Yeah, it's one to watch. Yeah.
1: Bringing some of those, uh, making core like pure Python sorts of packages faster, or you know, just seeing how that performance because my favorite package right now is rough because i really i am very pro python and rust (laughs) that's that's the thing i would like to learn next actually and or learn more of but cool yeah i think it's really cool how folks are kind of interrupting those two languages that have i really like the kind of security by default sort of approach of Rust as well as the tooling and community. So Ruff has been a really cool package to kind of... So Ruff is basically like um, Linter. It kind of replaces uh, some of the functionality of like a Black, a, a Flake.
0: Even more, yeah. They added the formatting, yeah.
1: Yeah, like they're kind of slowly growing and like, from my perspective, I'm like, I don't want to have to like have eight things in my requirements file that I need to have. <laughs> yeah. Well, whatever. And then people having preferences over, like if, if we can just have one, that is all of it. And I can just say, always have rough, yeah. you know, I'll be, I'll be a happy camper. So
0: do you use something like that in um, your notebooks?
1: Yeah. Um, I, tend to try and type everything I can just for sanity. So like, you know, having, um, type checkers and stuff, my, but my pie is also, I feel like I hit edge cases in my pie a lot and then just have to have lots of lines with the, please ignore this. (laughs) (laughs) So, I yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. Great. I guess that covers the, the, what do you want to learn next?
1: (laughs) I didn't mean to skip ahead, but it is relevant. (laughs)
0: No, no, no. It's great. It's, it is the, probably the most common answer I've gotten there is so much excitement and sort of cross pollination from at least the guests that I have on the show uh, that are into development that they are kind of eyeball on rust as a as a I don't know I wouldn't say like as a primary language for them but as this nice way of uh, sort of supplementing what they're doing inside of Python and and definitely for building tooling which I think is really neat so
1: cool yeah like Python's a good Swiss army knife uh, I yeah. don't think I want to <laughs> hack down a tree with a Swiss army knife so
0: <laughs> yeah yeah it might take some time yeah so john what are you excited about in the world of python
2: i think right now it's it's really the ai thing is is huge and and python of course is kind of lingua franca both for kind of creating the ai stuff but it's also a really interesting thing because the large language models are so good at writing Python. Huh, yeah. And so this this kind of dance around code interpreters in certainly OpenAI's ChatGPT, I think they, they renamed it to Advanced Data Anal- and Analytics or something, and then they're calling it Code Interpreter again inside of their API that they just uh, announced on uh, Monday. But that's super exciting. Um, the The idea that you can write quote-unquote programs in English that admit Python that then gets executed automatically for you all under programmatic control is a super interesting place to kind of continue to explore. Yeah. And what's really cool is that you don't even need you know, the OpenAI models necessarily to go do those things, right? Because plenty of the other um, language models that are out there are perfectly capable of um, generating Python code. Mostly, I think, because there's such a a good corpus of Python code to train um, the models on um, out there today yeah um, which is of course it's just a huge testament to the community and and the and the quality and the amount of code that's out there that the models can learn from so that that's the thing that i'm perhaps the most excited about right now is the kinds of things that we can do with with language models producing agents interactions between agents generating code as a way to get better results out of the 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 prompts that are Passed around between different agents, and yeah. so so that that that's that's the thing for me personally that I'm most excited about right
0: now. That's cool. I I have a guest on recently, uh, Lawrence Gray, and you know there's a there's always that kind of negative side, kind of like balancing act between this stuff. But one of the things that he said in this sort of age of AI that that you still, if you are interested in being in this developer space, you still need to learn about computational thinking and like how how that you know, stuff structured and and stuff like that, and how Python is such a great language for that. So I I, I agree with you, and I also think that yeah, that that boundary between writing in Python and English and and so forth is is maybe a, a much more akin to what these
2: things uh, have been trained on, and so that's interesting. So that's a, well, they're very good at that, right? Like like one way to kind of think about it is, you know, you know, like there's this often repeated, somewhat. I don't know. Dismissive way of talking about the language models is oh, they're just you know trying to predict the next token or the next word in a sequence, right? Right. But let's imagine this. Imagine that you had you're a human. You're you're reading a, a book, right? A storybook. It's you know like those murder books, right? There's some detective and sure. you know they're they're running around. there, they're figuring about your clues and then at the very end of the book, they're saying, "And the murderer is," <laughs> right. Right. If you're able to predict that, just think about what it takes to predict the name of whoever it was that was the murderer. Yeah. You have to read and understand all of the other stuff that came before that in the book in order to understand that. And that's what the models can do. Right. All the clues that are there. Right. Exactly. Yes. Right. So the same thing as you, you build up a mental model. Of what's going on in the in the story, right, and then you're going to make your own prediction right? because that's what makes it exciting and interesting to you and yeah. and if you can predict with accuracy right then then you're quote unquote intelligent i guess right and and so the <laughs> language models can do this, and surprisingly well on on these kinds of tasks as well right so so it's not just simply looking at some statistic and trying to predict the next word, it actually needs to understand all sorts of concepts in order to make that prediction at the same time,
0: yeah, yeah. It, and it's impressive the the speed we're moving at. So it'll it'll be definitely oh, yeah. another area to keep watching. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. It's it's a it's a very dizzying pace of
0: progress <laughs> here. So, what's something that you want to learn next? This doesn't have to be programming. It could be anything you know that you're interested in learning. Jeez, there's so many things.
2: I think that the the thing that I'm I'm most excited. And it goes back to AI because it's all AI all the time at Microsoft. Uh, it's it's really. Figuring out a good representation of knowledge in a way, because one of the things that, that, that's bad about the, the language models in AI today is that they're all kind of like, you know, you know, Dory from Finding Nemo. You know how Dory's like, yeah. who are you? What are you following me for? <laughs> and she can't remember anything. Exactly. And, and Just keep swimming. <laughs> exactly. Just keep swimming. Exactly. right? It, it, uh... <laughs> but, but that's what the context window limitations of language models are today. Right, they they don't have memory outside of that context window. Right, so once things fall off the back end of that thing, the model doesn't know any of that stuff. So, you know, imagine that just just working with the models today, it's it's highly limited that way. You have to kind of like load all of the context into the model in order to do something interesting or useful with it. So, the 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 notion and the idea about adding memory to um, the models, Mm. and in particular, uh, memory in the the kind of way that humans kind of have memories. So. And, and figure out what the right representation of that memory needs to look like, right, is, is something that I'm very um, excited to kind of dig into, uh, certainly over yeah. the holidays.
0: Yeah. Okay, cool. So the last question is, how can people follow what you guys are doing online? Uh, you guys are kind of in different areas somewhat. Uh, Sarah, how can people follow the work that you do online?
1: I am pretty much mostly on Mastodon at this point. <laughs> so, okay. I found a lot of the other kind of scientific Python developers hanging out there, but I'm my very first internet username is crazy. The number 4 pi as in pi 314. Okay. So, I'm just I'm still keep I'm rolling with it. I don't see a reason to change That's it, good. but it's <laughs> it's that at mathstodon uh okay. that xyz. We'll put it in I'm sure we put it in the show notes. Yeah,
0: yeah, but, uh, that sounds good. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that I'm on Mastodon. That's like my main way. Nice conversations. Um, I would leave things on Twitter, and no one would ever like respond to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I have actual back and forth with people on Mastodon, and uh, and definitely the Python community kind of drifted there. So that's been actually really kind of nice. So. Mm-hmm. So, John, how can people follow your work online?
2: So so I'm, I'm the, the contrarian here, of course. Right? I'm, I'm still on Twitter. and Okay. I, you know, like every now and then I'll say something somewhat intelligent on Twitter, but, but most of the time I lurk. Sure. Um, but I'm at John underscore Lamb um, on, on Twitter. Okay.
0: John and Sarah, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been really fantastic
2: to talk to you.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having us. <laughs>
2: yeah, thank you. Right, this is, this is super fun. I always like to kind of talk about the cool things that, that we have going on here. All right. Well, we might have to schedule an update
0: once, uh, once we learn what's happening and what's new. It's not done <laughs> yet. I'm, I'm excited. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's, there's plenty more to come. All
0: right. Sounds good. I want to thank Sarah Kaiser and John Lamb for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the Real Python podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the Real Python podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and look forward to talking to you soon.